All right, welcome back to our study of the book of Hebrews. We're so glad you could be here. I just think this book is one of the, the most important uh, books that we can study in our New Testament. Uh, not that any one is better than any other. I don't mean to, I mean, I just have favorites. But um, there are some. There are some that go a little beyond what others teach. Some of Paul's letters are difficult. The book of Romans is difficult. Some of them are a little easier. Um, Philemon, it's an odd book, but it's fairly straightforward and very short, right? Philippians, it's a pretty simple book. Doesn't mean it doesn't have good deep theology and, and great spiritual wisdom, but compared to Romans, it's, it's not quite the same. Hebrews is rich with things for us to discover and learn. It's also very difficult. You kind of have to put your waders on a little bit, and uh, and we've got to do some digging, and and, and we're going to have to tread through some deep water. But it's well worth it because I think a true understanding of of what the book of Hebrews is teaching offers us a better understanding, a more complete understanding of what was this Old Testament and why was this Old Testament what it was. And then it also offers us a clear understanding of Jesus. Because the author writes so logically and so rationally and builds a case so completely. And, uh, and we benefit from that because, you know, it wasn't written to us. It was written for us. Those who it was written to are Jewish Christians in the first century, in the middle part of the first century. And the author writes these things, encouraging them, encouraging them and helping them to understand where Jesus fits in their life and where the law fits in their life. You've accepted Christ. What does that mean if you've accepted Christ? If you accept Jesus Christ, what does it mean? Maybe easier for us today to understand what that means. Much harder to understand what that means if you are a first century Jew. Okay, you accept Jesus, now what? I keep living like a Jew. I, I, I uphold the law and I, I uh, obey the law uh, or what? And you might look at that and say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's their culture, that's their custom, that's what they were growing, uh, have grown up in. But the author of Hebrews says, wait a minute, um, if you continue living uh, in that old law, be aware of what you're doing. Because you cannot accept Jesus Christ and continue to live in the old law and it benefit you. And you especially can't continue to live in that old law and bind that on others. Because Jesus, when he came and he ministered and he died and rose again, he did something more than just provide an offering for sin. It was far more dramatic and, and far more profound than that. It changed everything. And so for us today as Christians, particularly Gentile Christians as we are, uh, we understand a little bit about Jesus and where he fits in all of this, but when we understand the book of Hebrews, it's eye-opening. Uh, the wisdom of God, the beauty of the cross, the power of the blood, and, and why that matters and then how we should live uh, accordingly. So the author has made the point that Jesus is superior. He's better than so many things, better than angels, better than Moses as a lawgiver. Offers a Sabbath rest that was better than Canaan, heaven. And then he goes into the section about the high priesthood. Jesus is a superior high priest because he's the son of God. Uh, and there's and, he, and what's listed in this three or four chapter span are all the ways he's superior as a high priest. First of all, 
he's the son of God. So he has the divinity to be a high priest, better than the current ones. He is also human, so he carries all the upside that a human high priest has in his understanding of the human condition. He brings a superior sacrifice. It's himself, because remember, the priest had to go in and offer sacrifices. Well, he brings himself as the sacrifice, so there's superiority there. He uh, is in the throne room of God, and because he dwells in the throne room of God, he is able to um, be the, the mediator of the covenant. The high priest couldn't be a mediator of a covenant. They were, a, they were an intermediary, but they were not the mediator of the covenant. And so uh, Jesus offers superiority there. And then we had those chapters, remember, a few weeks ago about Melchizedek and about the, the high priesthood and, and the, the proving that the author was doing of why Jesus was a superior high priest. So he gives all these reasons. It all makes sense. And then he says, the author does, remember this Melchizedek fellow? Remember the words that were spoken about him? Remember the Psalms? Well, Jesus is that high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And if he is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, then that means he is superior to the priests of Levi. And we talked through chapter 7, all the reasoning as to why that's the case. Then chapter 8 and 9 introduce us to an idea that we're going to expand upon here in chapter 10. And once we get past that, the heavy lifting of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant stuff, we kind of set that aside and move into to some how to live as a result stuff. So chapter 10 is kind of a climax or, or the, the final um, slide of the climax of the book. The idea is introduced in chapters 8, 9, and 10 uh, and expanded on in those chapters that if you have a new high priest, and if you followed the logic up to this point, you agree we have a new high priest in Jesus, then that means some other things are changing. If you've got a new high priest, it means you've got a new law, because every time they've changed the priesthood, they've changed the law. Okay, so a new priesthood means a new law, right? And a new law means a new covenant. And a new covenant means a new means of interacting with God. So, by virtue of the fact that Jesus is who he is, and that in a functional role as a high priest for us, that means there's a new law, there's a new covenant, it's time to let go of the old law and the old covenant. They are not serving you anymore. They are obsolete. They have no benefit to you. Everything you need is in Christ. Everything you need is found in him. So we come to chapter 10. And chapter 9 talks a lot about, well, you know, the priests used to do this, and if that worked for them, imagine what Jesus can do, right? Because he's bringing his, himself as the sacrifice, etc. Now, chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who are drawing near. All right. So he says, based on all this, you know, the imperfection of the old law and the high priest and the sacrifices, he says, because the law is just a shadow of the good things to come, it can't really fulfill what we need it to fulfill. What does this mean? Uh, skia is the, is the word in the Greek that we use for shadow. It means a representation or an impression of. We've seen this word used already in the last couple of chapters, and this is where we transition in the in the argument of the book of Hebrews, right? In the in the the rhetoric of Hebrews, we move very quickly from Jesus is superior to Jesus is a high priest 
to a new priesthood means a new law. And now the completion of the argument is a new law and a final law means that everything we've had before was meant to be a placeholder to inform us of something. The tabernacle was a physical representation of our relationship with God and a place where we could come into contact with God. The temple was a permanent dwelling place. It didn't move around like the tabernacle. It was a permanent dwelling place for God and for us to interact with God. Um, and it was good. It wasn't a bad thing. God wasn't displeased with it. It was there for the people to understand how their relationship with God would work. But now Jesus has come. And this tabernacle with these two rooms and this temple with these two rooms and all the things we did in those rooms have a different meaning now that's been fulfilled in Christ and we don't need them anymore. Because, the writer says in chapter 10, verse 1, the law is but a shadow of the good things to come. It's just a representation. It's just an image. It's an impression of what it is. You know, you can see a person's shadow and you can you can figure out a lot of things about them. Are they tall? Are they skinny? Are they fat? Are they short? Do they have a big nose? Do they have a prominent chin? Do they have a lot of hair? Uh, you might even be able to tell uh, just based on, on shape and, and features from the outline uh, who it is or things like that. But, but you can't tell what color someone's eyes are by their shadow. You can't tell the color of their skin by the shadow. You can't sometimes tell gender by the color of, or by the, by the shape of a shadow. Uh, there's a lot you don't know, but there's a lot you do know. And so they understood the basic outline of God and, and our relationship with him, but they could not understand the depth. They could not understand the truth, the real, the tangible, the, the actual. But Jesus brought the actual. And so because the old was just, the shadow, it couldn't do all the things you want it to do. If I see a shadow of a person, I can draw some conclusions about the person, but I can't know who it is. And I can't shake hands with a shadow. I can't talk with a shadow. I can't interact with a shadow. I can only interact and shake hands and talk with the person that that shadow represents. So the law could inform them on a lot of things, but they could not have the relationship with the law that they have through Christ. And that's what the author means. Um, those same sacrifices offered over and over and over can never fulfill what needs to be fulfilled. Otherwise, he says in verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So he uses the fact that they would do this sacrifice of atonement every year to cleanse the sin of the people for that one year. And he says, why did you keep having to do it over and over? If one time was enough, you wouldn't have done it again. But because you had to do it every year, that's because the sacrifice was insufficient to cleanse sin forever. It wasn't enough. So every year you had to make another sacrifice and every year, you had to be reminded of your sin. These, these regular, continual sacrifices are evidence that sin could not be done away with under the law. Verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. There is a very clear theme in these last couple of chapters that you cannot have two laws that coexist with God. You can't have two covenants. There's only room for one. And that's the covenant made through the blood of Jesus. And once he's in the picture, the other one has to go away. When, when, some, when, when, when a will goes into force, it means someone has died. Jesus died. The will went into force with us as the beneficiaries, and the old covenant has to go away. It no longer uh, is operational. And in the same way, he points out that these words here, God, you haven't liked the sacrifices and the offerings. That doesn't give you pleasure, but I've come to do your will. And he says when he, when he says that, he's getting rid of the first thing, the sacrifices and sin offerings, to establish the second thing, the will of God. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No more sacrifices every year, no more continual cleansing, one time. That's how great Jesus is. One time is all we needed. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected also means to be completed. He has offered completion, brought completion. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Remember, we read that uh, in a previous chapter. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is God speaking about what is to come. Hey, there's going to come a time where I'm going to get rid of all this mess. I'm going to put my law not on tablets of stone and not on scrolls, but on their heart and in their minds. There's going to be an intimate relationship, not one that is born out of ritual and, and, and earthly sacrifice, but out of a commitment of the heart and of faith and of a perfect sacrifice in Christ. And then, and only then, will I forget their sins forever. Will I no longer remember them. Where there is forgiveness of these, verse 18, there is no longer an offering for sin. I love that verse. I love that verse. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer sacrifice. The wages of sin is death, right? Death requires payment. It requires remedy, would be the legal term we would use. It requires sacrifice, blood. But once sins are forgiven... No charge anymore. Your sins are forgiven. There's no more offering, no more sacrifice. Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross again every time you sin. A faithful heart that seeks the forgiveness of God will receive it. That's, that's beautiful. Aren't you glad that you live in the Christian age? Aren't you glad you have this good news? It's just beautiful. All right, got a little bit more to go yet. Verse 19 
therefore, now, great word, always an important word. It means we're summing something up, okay? Jesus has done this once and for all. It's completed. It's perfect. No more regular sacrifice. No more sin. Therefore, because of this, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, remember, when Jesus died, remember what happened in the temple? The curtain, it was torn. It ripped in that earthquake. That means there is no longer a division between us and God. There's no longer the need for a priest to enter into this mystical place and perform these rituals. We have access. And because of that access, the author is saying, now we have confidence, we have strength. We know we can enter into the holy places because we have the blood of Christ, not the blood of some goat or cow, but the blood of Christ. And by the new and living way he opened through the curtain, that is his flesh, and we see that analogy in, in the account uh, of his death. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. Instead of the sprinkling of the blood on the altar, we, we are now sprinkled. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's important. We see that throughout the New Testament, the description of salvation as the cleansing of conscience, that we have some inner something that, that screams out our guilt, whether it is we feel it or whether it is we are confessing that guilt to God, that the cleansing of that conscience, the crying out to God for a clean conscience, Peter describes it as, we are being cleansed of our conscience. There's no more guilt. There's no more condemnation. All right, it's gone. We're released um, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, let's stop there. Great paragraph here, by the way one of the most important and really the climax of the whole book. And here's why. What is the point? What is the point? Why does it matter? Why is it important that Jesus died, that he ushered in a new covenant and that the old law is done away with? Why is that significant to the story of our relationship with God? Well, all of the points that this author has been making about angels and Moses and the law and the Sabbath rest and the high priest, we build upon that and say, if this, then this, and if this, then this. And then we get to the end. Okay, so Jesus is the Son of God. He is our salvation. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest. He's the mediator. He opened the door to the holy place. It's once. It happened one time and it's done. Great. We get it. Well, if that's true, then your life looks a lot different, doesn't it? If that's true, then that means you can speak boldly and confidently and know that you are heard by God. If that's true, that means that you should live faithfully in accordance with God's will, seeking to obey Him. It's, it's, it's a big difference in how we wake up every day and how we see the world. Do we see the world as one lived by law where I have to make sure that today I get from sunrise to sundown doing everything perfectly just as it is written. And if I mess up one time, uh, then I've got to wait 
and have a sacrifice offered so that God won't punish me for this. What would that perspective on life, where everything is, is the stress of keeping the letter of this law, that looks very different from the life of a Christian that says, I'm weak, I'm fallible, I'm human, but Jesus died for me because God loves me and I'm forgiven and I'm redeemed and I'm going to make the most of this time. I'm going to make the most of this life. I'm going to try to serve him the best I can and I'm not going to do it perfectly, but that's okay. When we are scared of failure and the law, the law is the design of the law is to make one fearful of mistake, fearful of failure. When you are fearful of failure, you hold back. You live in anxiety, you live in stress, and you live in legalism. But when you are freed from the burden of the law, when you're freed from the anxiety of perfection, you are now free to serve God. You are free to live um, proudly and boldly as a Christian. I think that's the difference, and I really think that's what the author is summing up here in this climax. In, in verses 19 through 25, he's saying, hey, if this is all true and you accept what, what I'm saying about Jesus, then that's going to change the way you live. You're going to obey because you love God, not because the law says to. You're going to approach him and have a relationship with him, not because you are perfect according to the law, but because Jesus has opened the door for you. It just changes the way we live. It changes the confidence we have, and it changes the things we're capable of. And he says, our consciousness has been cleaned our, body cleaned, our body has been washed. So now we can focus on fellowship with one another, encouraging one another, doing good works. We're freed from this burden, and we're liberated to a life of service and faithfulness. I think this is the climax. This is it right here. The whole point of chapters 1 through 9 was to get us here, to prove that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said he would do, and because of it, now you can live differently. Otherwise, what's the harm in letting Jewish Christians continue to live like Jews? Well, the harm is that they're not receiving and, and, and experiencing the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So that's why he's encouraging all this. That's why he's trying to convince them so clearly of these facts. Because when you get here, he's saying, okay, if you agree with this, then, then stop, stop neglecting spending time together. And fellow, you know, that, that verse here about um, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together is, is the habit of some. That verse has been weaponized so often to uh, attack people who uh, don't go to church services all the time or who miss Wednesday night Bible study or something, um, which is why I put them online. Now you have no excuse. Ha uh ha. -huh. Um, but that's not what that verse means. He means we lose. We, they, they were losing connection. They were losing community. They were losing fellowship. And people were putting other things above that community of, of faith. And he said, hey, you've been liberated now through Christ. So you can put your attention and your energy into living faithfully, encouraging one another, and spending time together. Very important things, okay? Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, notice he says deliberately. Hey, guess what? You're going to sin. Today, you're going to sin. 
before this video is over. You might sin. Uh, it might be that it goes on so long you you cuss at your at your phone uh, for for me going on this long. So I'll try to wrap it up. I wouldn't want to cause it, but uh, but you are going to sin. We're all going to sin. But he says here, if we go on sinning deliberately, if we go on continuing to serve ourselves and our every whim and passion, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now think about that and, and compare and contrast to the old law. Remember, they had annual sacrifices. Okay. Now, there, the downside to that is that no sacrifice is fully getting rid of your sin because you're coming... Or because you have to make it again. You come back around the calendar and you got to do it again, right? That's what he says in the early part of the chapter. They kept offering them because one sacrifice wasn't enough to get rid of all the sin forever. Well, the upside on that is uh, I get to keep sinning because there's another sacrifice coming. Ah, so Jesus comes. He's sacrificed once for all. Never has to be done again. Now, does that mean that your sin can be forgiven after the fact? Absolutely. Okay, you, you as a faithful Christian who, who's put your faith in Jesus, you've been saved, um, you're going to sin. But that doesn't mean that sacrifice, was, that sacrifice can reach backwards and forwards for all time and cleanse your sin. Okay, that's not what the author is saying. not saying there's a limit to it. But what he's saying is there's not going to be another sacrifice offered. Okay? Uh, you could keep sinning under the law and know there was another sacrifice coming to push that one forward. There's not another sacrifice coming. Jesus was sacrificed and it's done. Now, you can be forgiven, but if your heart is such that you're going to take advantage of the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, there's there's not. There's not another sacrifice coming around to cleanse that, but only, verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That, that was the law. You'd be put to death if two or three people uh, corroborated that you had, had broken the law. How much worse, verse 29, punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which uh, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Boy, that's some harsh words right there. Do you know that's what you do when you sin? Well, not exactly, but those who have a heart that will not hand itself over to God, it's what you do when you continue to hold back. We hold back from, uh, from God, a part of our life. We're, we're doing some things spiritually there. We're insulting the death of Christ and the sacrifice. We're enraging the spirit. And other verses will say we're crucifying Jesus a second time, again. It's as if we're crucifying him again because of our sin, because sin requires sacrifice. So how is that different than the sin that we commit as human beings that God forgives us for? Because we see an image of God forgiving freely sin that is committed uh, because he loves us and because we are humble uh, and, and repentant, but we also see this anger burning uh, and this sacrifice that is lacking for those who sin in a different way. The word deliberately is used there um, because it no longer matters that you keep the letter of the law. I mean, 
it's important, right? Keeping the ordinance of, ordinances of God, doing God's will, God certainly has a way he wants us to live. What I'm saying is that's no longer just enough. Some people look at it and say, well, because of Jesus, we don't have, there are no rules. No, the rules are there. It's just that the rules are no longer enough. In some ways, it's more strict. But what it ultimately comes down to is that Jesus has paved the way to heaven for us. And if you think that you can get by on just being good enough, you're wrong because you will fail. And if you put your trust in your own obedience to save you, you have to abide by the rule that that cuts both ways. And then you will be at the mercy of your sin to condemn you as well. Those who would deliberately sin, who would give no regard to the death of Jesus Christ, who would try to split hairs and make excuses or take advantage of the grace of God, they will find themselves in a precarious situation. Okay? The point of this is, and remember the context, we're moving people from an old covenant to a new covenant, and that's hard. They had a relationship with the law that was very different than the relationship they're going to have with God through Jesus Christ. And so the author is saying, you're going to have to change your way of thinking. You're going to have to change the way you think because uh, you thought legalistically, obey the law, get the reward, keep the law, get the blessing. Now you're going to have to think differently. Jesus has come and made the law obsolete, and that gives you a boldness and a freedom to live according to his will, um, according to the conscience that he's given you, to be obedient as response to his love rather than as a, as a, as a precondition for his salvation. Um, but if you take advantage of that and if you ignore him, and if you deliberately continue in sin after having seen this good news, after having received this blessing, if you still, if you can't look at Jesus and say, all right, well, I'm done with that sin. <laughs> if you can't look at Jesus and be changed, then you've got a problem. Because looking into the face of Christ and what he has done for you and what it does for your soul should change you. It should change you. <clears throat> um, so, uh, he compares, hey, you could be killed under the law of Moses for your disobedience. What do you think is going to happen to you if, uh, if you're disobedient under this new covenant, uh, the Son of God? Some scary language there. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's some scary language there, and I think it's meant to be scary. Does that mean that God is just full of rage and waiting to kill us, annihilate us, uh, harm us? No. And I think there's a lot that's misunderstood about who God is by um, the skeptic world and the atheist and agnostic world. I think they see God as an egotistical maniac, a tyrant who demands strict obedience or you will be punished. God is just the opposite of that. And they are sadly mis mis uh, misinformed about who God is. And, um, and I pray that those who are doubters will be taught Jesus and the Father in the way that they're meant to be taught, and maybe they would understand and accept. But as it stands, verses like that right there, if you don't know who God is, 
would lead you to a, a bad impression. If you were to judge my my father growing up, and I had a loving, wonderful father, I, and his way of disciplining was was very even-handed, and and it worked for me. Um, if you were to judge him by his angriest moment, or the moment where I was being punished in the harshest way he ever would, whatever that was, I can think of a few examples, but I won't share them. If <clears throat> if you judge my dad by just those moments, without considering why that moment happened, which was usually my fault, you get a bad impression of my dad. You have to judge the whole. We we don't look at God and define him by verse thirty one of chapter ten, um, because we know that that verse is is talking about those who live lives of ignorance to the beauty of the cross and continue to live selfishly. Verse 32, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened and endure, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, <clears throat> and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my, righteousness, but my, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls." This is the culmination of these first nine, ten chapters. This is the point. Okay, The point is, we've been called to something greater than the law could ever hold. And if we turn away now, we are giving up such blessing. If we fail to recognize what Jesus is doing and has done, we're leaving blessings on the table. And if we do not find ourselves changed in the face of the gospel, we're settling for less. The door to hell, some would say, is locked. There's no escape. But I would say it's locked from the inside. Those who have uh, chosen to reject God and reject Christ have put themselves in the position of separation from God and punishment for their lack of faith. <clears throat> God, and we could say this about earlier verses where he talks about being once being enlightened but then falling away, it's impossible to come back. I would say this falls under that definition. The door to, to hell is locked, but it's locked from the inside. God is always willing to save us. But our hearts can become too hard to take that step. Our, um, our soul can become too embittered and our life too self-centered. The door to hell is locked, but it's locked from the inside. God has given and made available everything we need to be saved through his son, Jesus. So we transition now into a new part of the book. We've been building an argument for the superiority of Christ, and then a couple of chapters about why that matters and what that means for our soul and for our, our faith. And then we get into chapter 11, and we're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about what faith looks like. 
and why faith matters and how from the beginning of the story of God and his people, there have been those who were righteous because of their faith and who lived righteously according to their faith. And then we're going to talk about where that faith is placed and we're going to close the, the, the book uh, talking more about our relationship with God as a result. So we're transitioning into application. There's rhetoric and argument, there's conclusion, and then there's application. And ver- chapter, uh, the end of chapter 10 and, and chapter 11 begins that process of applying uh, what we've learned so far in the book of Hebrews. So I know I went a little bit over today, a little bit lengthier chapter, and something we need to really give attention to. So thank you for sticking through this. We'll see you next time.